readings tonight. The first one is Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Then the second reading is on it's John 2, verses 1 to 25. John 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? He replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some wine out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need the testimony, he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is God's word.
Do keep uh, John 2 open. We'll uh, be spending most of our time in there. And uh, don't worry, we're not uh, letting Pete escape without, uh, without a proper interview and a goodbye. He's, uh, he'll be commissioned a little bit later on. Um, and uh, tonight is also the last night for, for Kevin, who's uh, he- heading back to the States. Um, he's decided to, to jump out and, uh, and head across the pond, uh, sort things out over there. Uh, so there'll be uh, plenty of time afterwards to, to catch up with Kevin and bid him a fond farewell um, and make sure that we uh, try and encourage him to keep the accent that he's learned over here for as long as possible. Let's, uh, let's pray and then let's look at John 2 together. Father God, we pray that you would help us to see and understand these words, that we might meet the Lord Jesus, that we might trust him and love him and be filled with hope for all that he has promised us for the future. Amen. Christians have got a pretty dull reputation. I mean, Christian is almost a byword, a synonym for dull, killjoy, lifeless. I mean, when was the last time you ever, can you imagine this conversation? Yeah, we need to really make, make sure it's just the best party ever. Um, what can we do to just guarantee it's absolutely jumping? I know, we should invite some Christians. Oh yeah, that's going to get the party started. What? It's just, we just don't think Christians are much fun. Uh, and you're looking at me and thinking, there's a reason. Um, but uh, get your prejudices out of your heads. That, I don't really care what you think about me. Well, I do a little bit, more than I should. But anyway, the, the sad thing is, whatever our view of Christians, we've come to think as a culture that because Christians have got a dull reputation, that Jesus must be utterly dull, that he is the grey man. But John 2 tells us that Jesus is anything but dull. He is the Lord of life. And he has come to start the greatest party and bring us into the most unimaginable paradise. And the more that we understand the paradise that he's promised, the party that he's preparing, then the richer our lives will be, the more joy we'll have in the down times on earth and the more hope that we'll have for all of life here and now. But before we get into uh, the detail of this, it is just worth um, stopping and and remembering that this is not just a random miracle. The point of this is not just, well, uh, Jesus is a guy who likes a party, and so he did a magic trick to kind of prove that to us. See, Jesus doesn't arrive at a random place on earth, at a random time in history, to a random people with random religious practices and perform some random miracles to prove to them that he's God. He comes to Israel and that is no accident. He comes to a particular people with a particular history and with particular rituals and religion. And he comes to do signs, not miracles. At the end of John's gospel, if you flip forward to John 20 verse 31, you realize that Jesus' actions are significant, literally. 
There is a meaning behind them because he arrives at a particular culture and a particular set of religious beliefs and he does particular actions inside them. So John 20, 31, 30 to 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. Jesus doesn't just do random stuff so we say, wow, only God could do stuff like that. You're amazing, Jesus. Now, everything he does has a background in the Old Testament. And the significance of what Jesus does can only be understood through the lens of the first two-thirds of the Bible, the history of Israel. And as we look at these two incidents together, we'll see that. We'll see that Jesus isn't just doing amazing things so we think he's an amazing person. He's doing particular things so we understand he's the fulfillment of what was promised before. He is, right from the start, Genesis 3.15, the first great promise. He is the promised serpent crusher. He is the fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel, of God's people for thousands of years. And both incidents, you may be wondering what on earth they had to do with each other. But both incidents demonstrate that Jesus came to turn Old Testament ritual into reality. To turn Old Testament symbols into substance. If you like, Jesus is to the Old Testament what uh, a wedding day is to an engagement ring. The fulfillment of the promise. He is to the Old Testament what moving into a house is to exchanging contracts. He is to the Old Testament what starting work and receiving your first paycheck is to the handshake at the end of the interview. He is ritual become reality. Now we're going to focus our time on the first incident, so don't worry. When we get to the end of that, we are basically done. Don't panic. Uh, And let's look at this first incident together. As we see, the Messiah takes us from cleansing to celebration. It's the, the end of the first week, really, of Jesus' public life. Verse one, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So there's this wedding in the next village, not very far away. Jesus and his first followers, there's five or six of them at this point, they've been invited together with his mother Mary. And if you thought weddings were expensive these days, back then they lasted a week. And the bride and groom would be expected to provide food and drink for all their friends and relatives and accommodation for the whole week. It would have been an enormous embarrassment if anything ran out. And so verse 3 is a serious crisis. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I mean, you couldn't just say, okay, wine's run out. We've got a honeymoon to get to. Time for you lot to go home. Bye. (sighs) Got my toothbrush out. It's time for you to clear out. You just couldn't do that back then. Now, verse 4 is very often misunderstood as Jesus responds. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. It sounds harsh to us as if Jesus is saying, Mum, I'm 30 years old. You can't keep saying stuff like that. Not in front of the guys. I mean, seriously. It's just, it's hard to translate the word woman. But when you turn to the end of the gospel, in the horrific hour of his crucifixion, as he hangs, bloodied, brutalized, barely alive on the cross, It's the same word he uses to speak to his mother, to ensure with his very last breaths on earth that she's looked after. He says, woman, this is your son, as he gets John to look after her. So it's it's not a a sort of brutal, rude put down from Jesus. Rather, Jesus is saying something that will only make sense to Mary later on. 
He's saying, look, I've got a particular mission from God. And everything I do is determined by that. And the timetable of what I do and the decision of whether I do things is entirely down to that. I won't march to anybody else's tune. And it's not yet time for me to be revealed in public. When you look at verse 11, you see that at this point, only the disciples really see what's going on. As you go through, John, you'll see this, uh, this idea of the, the time or the hour not yet come. It's a, it's, a, it's a phrase that points towards the cross. From John 12, 33 onwards, as he says, my hour has come. As the phrase is repeated again and again, it is always pointing towards his death on the cross. That's where he's going. And he's saying, look, I have a mission from God and nothing really will distract me from it. Okay, what happens next is, uh, frankly, as amusing as it is remarkable. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So clearly she doesn't think that he's um, snubbing her. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Now the servants, you can imagine, all in a panic, the water's run out, what do we do? Running about, running about, wondering where on earth they can get more from. And Jesus tells them, fill up the washing jars. Now these are massive stone vessels, holding, as it says, around 100 litres each. The Jews had very complex rules of ritual cleanliness, and especially before eating, they had, to, they had to wash in a particular way. So for a, a week's fasting, there would have been this enormous amount of water. We're talking a small swimming pool, basically, of water. And Jesus turns the lot of it into wine. Every last drop. Without touching it, without speaking to it, without performing an incantation, he just does it by force of will. And then he tells them to take a cup of dishwater, basically, to the banquet master. You can imagine them saying, oh, I'm not going to do that. You, you take it. Oh, you take it. The most junior person, you know, work experienced boy, is sent in to, to the master of the banquet, sort of hands the cup and sidles away. And the master takes a drink, takes another much bigger drink, finishes it and says, refill that from whichever bottle it came from right now. And he has no idea what it is. He just knows it is absolutely amazing. And then he says, uh, I love verse 9, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. So he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap stuff after the guests have had too much to drink. You've saved the best till now. I mean, you know what he means. He's saying, look, there's been a week of partying. That's the time to bring out the screw cap stuff. I mean, frankly, they could be drinking the blue liquid they use for cleaning combs of the hairdressers and they'd have no idea. I mean, why would you bring out the Chateau Margot now? It's, it's, it's madness. But of course, uh, for those of us who live in a scientific, rational culture, our big issue is not what a foolish waste of great wine when people's palate has gone. It's, uh, hang on, water becoming wine. Yeah, interesting story. Uh, maybe there's some sort of uh, significance. Um, maybe this is a, a we're, we're meant to, to think of this in, in sort of figurative terms, allegorical. But you're not expecting me to believe seriously, literally, that he turned water into wine, like real water, real wine. Yes. But that's not possible. Indeed. 
That's kind of the point. The whole point of the story is it's impossible. Verse 11 doesn't say, and this is just the kind of thing that happens in our magical world with its unscientific ways. If John thought water could be turned into wine, then the fact that Jesus does it would prove nothing about him. The eyewitnesses who wrote the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were convinced of three things. One, miracles can't happen because we live in an ordered universe, which is why an awful lot of the first scientists, the founding fathers of the modern scientific movement, were Christians. And all of them grew in a Christianized culture, which was convinced there was one God who'd made an ordered universe. The gospel writers were convinced of the same thing. Two, they were also convinced that they saw real miracles happen during the lifetime of Jesus. And therefore, three, the only possible explanation must be that God had arrived and broken the rules that he set in place in nature. The whole point is it's impossible. And when the impossible happens, the only explanation must be the finger of God. Now, for others of us, uh, I guess... It's not the fact that Jesus breaks the laws of nature that's a surprise. It's what he chooses to do. That he uses his divine power to turn water into wine. Because we've got this idea of a God who is basically turning wine into water wherever he can. This sort of cosmic killjoy whose greatest fear is that somewhere, somebody in his universe is having a laugh. And that just, whoa, that's awful. Not the sort of God you would ever, ever want to invite to a party. But how wrong can you be? Here is God, and he's turned up at a wedding reception, and he's brought with him 600 litres of the finest vintage wine you've ever drunk. Extraordinary. Okay, great. Uh, Jesus turns water into wine, and it's not Jacob's Creek, it's Chateau Margaux. Okay, we get that. Wonderful. But what's the point? Because it is a bit odd when you think a little bit deeper. Here is if the Bible's to be trusted, God in human flesh invading the world, come on a cosmic mission to battle the forces of death and destruction and evil, to save humanity from the corruption inside, the evil outside and the death that's coming to all of us. And he begins his great mission, his cosmic war against the forces of evil by turning 600 liters of water into wine. That is an odd way to start your mission. But when you read the Old Testament, you understand why he does what he does. There are loads of references we could have looked at, but Camilla read for us from Isaiah 25. Um, Why not flick back to that? I've got a different Bible, so I'm not sure. Can somebody shout out a page reference? The one on the screen. Very good. 709. 709. Isaiah 25. The prophet Isaiah writing around 700 BC and he has this great promise about what will happen when God's saviour king, the Messiah, comes. And the Lord promises, on this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. 
in that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. The Lord has set a day when he will end the old order of things. When he will destroy death, he will swallow it up forever. And that will be a day of feasting and a day of rejoicing. The mountain of the Lord in the Old Testament is the the place where symbolically God dwells and it will be literally dripping with fine wine covered in sizzling fillet steaks and everyone who finds themselves as a guest at that party will say, I am so, so glad that I put my trust in Jesus Christ. And so the wedding in John 2 is, a, is both a taster, a trailer for what is to come, a hint of what life will be like when Jesus the Messiah returns. But it's also a statement that, that Jesus has come to bring in everything that was promised in the Old Testament. All those glorious promises are fulfilled in this wonderful person. They're a sign to point us to trust in him if we long to be part of that great feast. And so it says in verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' miracles are there to to give us the evidence we need to put our trust in him, that he is God and he can save us and give us forgiveness and eternal life. And as well as evidence, they're there to give us the information we need to understand what will it be like if I trust in this man? What am I signing up for? What does he promise me? You see, many of us have just got a nagging doubt, if we're honest, that heaven will not be that good. And so it's very, very hard to give up things in this life to follow Jesus. You know, we fear that It just won't be that much fun to hang out with God in heaven forever. I just think it'll be dull, like one of those parties you turn up and, ooh, not very many people here. Okay, ooh, name labels, that's fun. Uh, Oh, and the music, it's just a little bit too old to be hip and a little bit too new to be classic. And, oh, how soon is too soon to leave before it's embarrassing? And you just, we think heaven is basically going to be a dull church service with interminable sermons on uncomfortable pews that just goes on and on and on and on. And you have a very good idea of what that feels like some Sundays, I'm sure, except you have comfortable seats. But the God revealed in John 2 is not a lifeless killjoy. He is not uptight and stuffy. He's a God of joy and feasting. It's as if Jesus says this, look, I turned a huge heap of water into wine. I know there's a chance you'll think it's okay to get drunk. It's not, but frankly, I'm not so bothered about that. I just want you to get into your heads. It is going to be a mind-bogglingly brilliant, wonderful party when I finally bring in the new kingdom. When I return, you do not want to miss out on what's going to happen. And so I don't care what you misunderstand. So long as you get into your heads, how good it's going to be to be with me forever in paradise. But we're not quite ready to move on because there is a little detail that doesn't make sense in the story. I wonder if you noticed it. Verses six to eight. 
Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 80 to 120 liters. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master. Why draw water out of, do you see what had to happen? He says, go get water from over there and fill these jars. And once these jars are full, then take water from these jars. To the, why not just take water from over there and give it to the master? There's clearly something particularly important about the water coming from these stone jars. And the thing is, Jesus is saying something more here than just heaven will be a great party. He wants them to take the wine from ceremonial washing jars. See, the Old Testament is just full of ceremonial washing. It is just one of the big things in the Old Testament. Laws and rituals about ceremonial cleaning. And all of those various laws and rituals have the same basic meaning, which is that you're unclean. It's a picture of what we're like inside. We're sinful, so we're unclean. We need washing. And to be unclean meant that you were cut off and you were kept out. You were kept out of the camp. You couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't join society. And so these laws, these unclean, clean, cleansing laws, are a massive visual illustration of the, the big story of the Bible, which is right at the start, God took man and woman, the first man and woman, and plonked them into paradise. But like every single one of us since, they thought they knew better, and they weren't happy with God being God and them being human, and so they disobeyed God, tried to take his place, which brought sin and misery and death to the world. And so they were cast out of God's paradise. They became unclean. And every time a Jew washed their hands, every time they performed one of the ceremonial washing rituals, every time those wedding guests came to start a new meal that week and washed their hands, they were reminded they were unclean and cut off from God's paradise. But Isaiah 25 promised that when God's Messiah came, he would end the reign of sin and death and the people would again be welcome at God's feast. And so when Jesus turns not just any water, but ceremonial cleaning water into wine, he's saying the time of your uncleanness is over. The time of feasting has returned. The time of your being stained, ashamed, cut off from God the time of you being too filthy inside to come near a pure God, all of that is over. Jesus was going to do something that would mean we would never need to be washed again. As he dies on the cross, he does something more than an external ritual. He fully really takes all of our filth and our sin and our shame. And he takes it upon himself and is cut off from God. So you and I can be clean and come near. And so this is even better, actually, than, a, than just the best wedding invitation. I, for the first time in my life, I found myself thinking I'd actually quite like to be at a royal wedding. I think Harry and Meghan's reception was probably quite a laugh. I don't know if that makes me very old or just I think that they actually look like then you had to have a good time. Um, but this is an invitation to a wedding party way better than that. But also, this is an invitation to a wedding party that you and I should not be invited to. This is a host we've dishonoured. We've disobeyed. We've disgraced. 
Really, God should not be sending us round an invitation to his wedding party, but sending us round, well, the police to arrest us and bring us before him for punishment. And instead, he calls us round to join his feast and his dancing and welcomes us into his family. And God extends that invitation to every single one of you here tonight. He says, no matter how filthy you think you are, if you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no need for cleansing and shame anymore. All of that is done by Jesus. You can come and join me in the feast. Now, maybe that feels like we're reading an awful lot into one or two little words. Um, So let me just show you briefly from the second half of the chapter that actually this is how Jesus wants us to understand this that he's come to bring us from the cleansing to the feasting. As you see, uh, God no longer meets, meets us in a place, but in a person. Uh, so 12 to 13, we're at the temple in Jerusalem. After he went down to Capernaum with his, brother and, his mother and brothers and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now the temple was built by Solomon, David's son, so sort of 950 um, BC it was built. It was destroyed 500 odd years later, 550 years later by the Babylonians in 587. It was razed to the ground. It was rebuilt 65 years later by Zerubbabel and it's now being extensively refurbished by Herod the Great. Not a very nice man but a very impressive architect. That's the headline and it becomes one of the most magnificent buildings in the ancient world. Three key things about the temple. And these come from Solomon's dedication prayer in 2 Chronicles 6. Three key things. Presence, prayer, and propitiation. Presence. God said, God lives in the highest heaven. He he is present everywhere. He is God. But he said that he would be symbolically, um, especially, intensely present in this particular place, this temple, as a sign of his blessing on his people, the Israelites. And if they wanted to draw near to God, it meant for them physically going to the temple. They had a physical place where they would draw near to God. Second, prayer. It was also like the kind of phone line that connected them to God. So they were told, if you go to the, pr- the temple or you pray to the temple, God will hear you. Don't just pray any way you want. This is how to pray. The temple is the, is the connection point between you and me. So pray at the temple. And thirdly, propitiation, which is a a fancy word for punishment being paid, which is why there were sacrifices all the time at the temple. The temple was where sin was dealt with. Every time an animal was killed as a sacrifice for sin, it was as if uh, the animal was was paying for the sin of of the human being with its own blood. The temple was at the heart of all the ritual and all the religion in the Old Testament. And look at what Jesus says he has come to do. Verse 14, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. 
Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is saying he is the new temple and the true temple. He is where we meet the real presence of God, not just the symbolic presence of God. He is where we have perfect access to God in prayer. If we trust in Jesus, he guarantees us a hearing in heaven. And he is the final sacrifice for sins. Not an animal, but a person to take the place of a person to pay for their sin. He is the reality to which all of the Old Testament rituals pointed. And so we're not reading too much into the water jars in verses 6 to 8. We're not reading too much significance into the water and the wine. He wants us to see that he fulfills all the Old Testament rituals. Jesus is the reality. And he calls us to join him in his paradise. I don't know what the the greatest holiday you've ever been on is. It's different things for different people. For some it's a place, for others it's particular people, for others it's particular activities. I think, uh, as I think about the, probably the, the most amazing holiday experience, it was the first time I actually went to the Caribbean. We were visiting family and friends in um, actually quite a scuzzy bit of the world. Um, but like lots of really dodgy bits of the world, it was very close to rather nice bits. And so after 48 hours of travelling, the usual you know, 5am flight um, from February, Gatwick, horrific, and jet lag and all the works. But we finally arrived... And I remember, I'll never forget the next morning, having never been to a place like this before, sort of stumbling out and down, and oh, it's warm at eight o'clock in the morning. What is this? It's February. What is going on? And, and someone had, had raked the sand. I mean, who rakes the sand on a beach? But they'd raked the sand. It was extraordinary. And, you know, one of the, one of the wonderful things about the British seaside is that as you put your feet in up to ankles, you have that, that it's like... Um, it's like being anesthetized uh, as you just feel your feet go lovely and numb and you can't feel them which is rather pleasant but this was just different it was warm water and it was the sea it's extraordinary and there were palm fronds and breakfast was being cooked and out to sea you could just see gentle rippling waves and blue sky and coconuts dropping onto the beach near you I mean, it was just magic absolute magic I thought this is just great. I mean, when the large cruise ships sort of hove into view and a thousand people descended, you know, slightly ruins it, but hey, that always happens in this world. But the thing is, the thing that I felt was not just this is amazing. I also felt I could get used to this. Do you know what I mean? You have that feeling of not just this is wonderful, but I feel like I belong here. <laughs> I really, you know, this, this just feels like where I was meant to be. And the truth is, on the very best of holidays, we sense more than just that we love it. We get that sense of home. And the Bible says that's a real thing. That at the beginning of time, we were designed for places like that without the cruise ships. We were designed for places like that and experiences like that. But because of our sin, we have been cut off from the beauty and the goodness that God sowed into this world at the start. And when we come to Jesus, his promise is to bring us to that place where we'll feel, oh, this is where I was always meant to be. He came to bring us home to paradise 
He came to bring us home to the place we've been shut out from all our lives, the place we're too unclean to earn by our rights. And he came to bring us home. And he came to bring us not just for a couple of weeks, if we're lucky, once a year. But he came to bring us to his paradise forever. Not with the rights that a visa gives you to to visit and stay for 90 days, but with the rights of a child adopted into the family who will enjoy it forever. And he extends to every one of us that invitation. Will you join me in paradise forever? Will you let me clean you, Jesus says? And will you come and join me? Now, I guess there'll be some of us who've never heard that, uh, that invitation. I would encourage you to take it up. There'll be others of us who hear it and think, yeah, I do follow Jesus. And to be honest, I just feel a bit meh about the whole thing. A bit underwhelmed about the gospel. I'm sure I should be excited by it, but it just... Let me encourage you. It's easy to get dull to it after years, but there is so much more to learn about Jesus. There is so much more richness to be found. Dig into the Old Testament. He fulfills the whole Old Testament. What that means in our minds is so I can ignore the whole Old Testament because, you know, it's all about him. And why, why bother with the signs when I can go to the, the reality? But actually everything the Old Testament teaches lends richness and color and depth to our understanding of Jesus. And if you find yourself just feeling like it's all a bit too familiar, well then stretch yourself, dig deeper, learn more. You know, tonight's a wonderful night. There's some phenomenally good books which will, which will stretch not just your brain, but will help to stretch your heart and teach you more of Christ. Because the more you understand of him, the more excited you'll be about the paradise that he has promised for you. The challenge for us tonight is to be less indifferent about this great host, less lukewarm about the paradise he has promised us. We should want to know him better. We should want to find out more of what he has to offer. And we should be more excited to offer it to others. For you and I, every person here who's become a Christian has a bucket full of free invitations to the greatest party that ever there was. Let's hand them out liberally. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you that in a world that uh, very often feels like February in London, we have this wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus came not just to, uh, to cleanse us from our sin, but to cleanse us so that we would be able to join him in your great paradise party. Thank you that you give us such rich images of, of feasting on meat and wine. And thank you that the Lord Jesus has done everything necessary to provide us with access to that party forever. Help us to trust him, to love him, and to grow in our excitement and confidence as we look forward to that day. Amen.